Good morning, church. Which is weird because it's actually Wednesday night my time when I'm recording it and it's dark outside. So, <laughs> um, If you don't mind, let's just begin with prayer. Amen, Lord God. Father, help clear my mind and help me just to share this, Lord. Because it actually has been very hard to, to just focus in and just talk about this and just present a sermon on this subject, on this passage, Father. So I just pray that you bring it alive, that, Lord, it's not my words always, that it needs to be your words, Lord. And I just pray that it is your words that come through and that it is your, your inspiration, Father. And help me not to speak on my own, because this is the sermon. This is actually what you want to share, God. So I need to be in touch with you and in tune with you. And I pray, God, that you help me just to speak what you want me to speak and not what I want to speak. So, amen, Lord. Uh, I just pray this, Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. Um, we're looking at Colossians 1. We've been going through uh, Colossians. Duncan took, took us through a couple of weeks back talking about the conflict that was going on and that the, uh, the, the church in Colossae at the time was being influenced by all these different competing ideas from paganism, the, the Greco-pagan uh, mythological world to uh, Judy ideas and um, uh, a kind of a mishmash between the two as well. And so Paul enters into this to, to set things right. He enters into this to try and iron these things out and get the church focused on what counts. And in here, in this, in, we're going to be going through Colossians 1, verses 15 to 29. And right here, Paul just narrows in on Christianity. What is Christianity? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, pure and simple. It's just us trying to connect in a personal way to the creator of the universe. It's us just trying to know him. And I'll confess, this is about the, this is probably about the 11th time now I've tried to start this sermon. And I actually have struggled to try and figure out what to share in this. And so I've got to say I'm very grateful to this book here. And I'll take you through most of what I'm going to share is actually coming from here. Um, but Paul wants the, the Colossian church just to Focus in on Jesus. And we're going to start in verse 15. So let me read. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, under which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone full and mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all my energy, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Theologians have looked at this and they believe that verses 15 to 20 are a hymn. If you look at it, there's a rhythm to them and there's also an interjections in those rhythms that look like Paul is emphasising things on his own to, to bring out what's said in that hymn. So hymns were common in the early church. And if you think about the, the way um, our old theological songs, the hymns that we have, there's deep theological truths. I love those 18th, 17th century hymns because they say such deep things in them when we sing them. Um, you know, I Vow to You, My Saviour is one of my favourite hymns. And you think about the, the depth that comes out of that song um, and the melody that's been put to it. It, it, it. it rises and falls and carries your soul with it as you listen to the music. But in the words themselves is a depth to them that here we're seeing a hymn pulling out deep theological truths. This one, when Paul shares this, he's, right, he's, he's carefully written it to convey the specific self-contained message about Christ to the Colossians. It's designed to draw attention to the person and the work of Christ in cosmic and in salvation terms. Paul shows his readers that we were reconciled to lead a moral and obedient life under the lordship of Jesus. Paul is countering the false teachings of the Colossians have been receiving and he's redirecting them back to focus on Jesus. Um, the primary purpose of the hymn is to establish the superiority and the preeminence of Christ in all things, in everything, every aspect of life, period. Verse 15, he says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word 
uh, eicon, icon, is the image, and it communicates the idea that Christ participates in and with the nature of God. The result of the incarnation is that the invisible God becomes visible in the God-man Jesus Christ. So the God who seems distant in a sense and hard to touch, hard to connect to, becomes personal, becomes real, and becomes relational. And we can interact in a very direct sense that we as people understand. By bearing the image of God in this way, Jesus stands apart. He stands apart from the created order and is therefore the firstborn over all creation. He is not a created thing. He stands over the creation. He is, by saying firstborn, it's bringing that preeminence up. He is above and he is over and he is before all the created order. Not that he is created. He is uncreated. He is God. So by bearing the image of God, Jesus stands apart from the created order and is the firstborn, therefore, over all creation, that preeminence. Verse 16, <coughs> excuse me, talks about all creation and by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. So God created the whole universe by him, by Jesus, and for him, for Jesus. Jesus is both the agent of creation, the causal agent of creation. If you know anything about um, uh, philosophy and you know certainly uh, William Lane Craig's arguments for the, uh, the philosophical arguments for the existence of God, Jesus is the causal agent. He is also the goal of creation. And this, I, I think, something is, I miss this. I, I know and recognize that Jesus is the uncaused first cause for the creation. But I forget that he's also the goal of creation. All of creation finds its goal in Christ alone. The perfect tense of the word created, and I'm not, in the Greek I can't really spell it out, but I'll, I'll try and pronounce it. No, I won't. <laughs> but, but the word used for created shows that, that what has taken place in God's creative activity continues to be effective. So the word doesn't, it isn't a past tense, it's an ongoing action in a sense. It's a, it's causing or what's taken place continuing to be effective. Paul pushes this point. He says all things, he twice does this, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, including all spiritual forces, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. So thrones, powers, rulers and authorities uh, represents a view of classification that uh, of basically of the spiritual powers. So people in the first century were kind of familiar with this terminology. They would They would view spiritual powers, the gods and so on in the pagan world 
as being thrones and powers and rulers and authorities. And you would have the rulers claiming that they were the direct, you know, um, sons of God, you know, of gods, because they were, in a sense, um, justifying their power over the people. And so this was a concept that was well, well known to first century people. But here Paul points out that these powers, regardless of what they were, think about the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire that ever existed. That power, that throne, is subject to Christ's supremacy. All things are subject to Christ's supremacy. Since they were created by him and they were created for him. So Jesus is Lord over all powers. Verse 17, it goes and says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the Greek here, again, it, it connotes basically not just preservation, but coherence. So the idea is it coheres, it, 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 um, it's solid, it makes sense, it, it is logical, it forms together, and it perseveres. So he holds all these things together. He keeps them together in a very spiritual sense. Now, we can look at physics and go, yeah, well, you know, things hold together because of the weak and strong nuclear forces and that. But that's not what the Bible is talking about here. The Bible is talking about the, the, the goal and purpose of creation is Jesus, and Jesus is holding that all together. He holds it in complete logic and consistency and... You know, the reason we have laws, the reason we have scientific laws articulated is because Christians went out and said, hey, you know, my mind is sinful, but the God who creates the universe is unsinful, is logical, is knowable, and is rational, and therefore I should expect to find his creation to be understandable and rational and coherent and consistent so if I do something over here, it should be the same over there. And so they went out and they birthed the scientific endeavor that, that led to everything from, you know, the fields of cosmology through to medicine, through to biology, through to you name it. So, and this never happened in any other culture and it didn't happen in any other culture because other cultures didn't have the worldview to take it there. And so consistently they'll go so far and then they'll just collapse. So they'll end up being locked into this mindset that they couldn't get out of. But only through Christianity did it birth the modern era and in particular give birth to science. And so that whole coherence, the fact that we use the concept of scientific laws, laws are just descriptors, but they describe how the universe operates when uninteracted on from an outside force. So if you drop a pen, you will expect it to fall every time. Well, that's logical, and it's logical because Christ holds it together. It's the, he is the purpose and the goal of the universe. And so this, we should expect to see coherence. We should expect to see logicality. We should expect to see things that we can describe as laws in the universe because Christ holds these things together in a coherent way, and he perseveres it onwards. And as a result, the universe is logical. It makes sense. It's not, um, things don't just spontaneously appear out of nowhere. So the Lord who creates the universe is the one who sustains it. 
and he's made what we describe as the laws of the universe and so on. He has made this coherent, rational order in which we can be here. In verse 18, he goes on, so in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul has established Christ's supremacy. Sorry. Excuse me. Paul has established Christ's supremacy and lordship over creation. Now he will establish Christ's lordship over the church. So he gets to verse 18, he goes into something. And a bit of background here, and again, I take it from this from the commentary here, the Greeks, so Plato and the Stoics, and uh, as well as Philo, the Alexandrian Jew and contemporary of Jesus, he lived around Jesus' time. I think he was in Alex- yeah, he was in Alexandria. <clears throat> in Alexandria. They presented mythology- mythological concepts of the universe as a body that was governed by a head. So the cosmos was filled by the deity and by the deity, and so whether it's gods or whatever they thought, and therefore viewed as a body of the deity of which wisdom and logos, logic or word, uh, which we also get the word, word, as its head. The common belief was that just as a person's physical body needs direction and guidance from the head, and we use that concept today, you know, let your head rule your heart. You know, we, we use our mind is often regarded as brain and heart is regarded as feelings. So, just as a person's physical body needs direction and guidance from the head, so the body of the cosmos needs a head such as the logos or wisdom as its unifying principle. Now, the interesting thing is what the Greeks attributed to wisdom and logos, the early church attributes to Christ. And it says, no, no, actually, there's wisdom and this logos you're talking about, that's Jesus. So Jesus is the divine logos, and he governs the body of the cosmos. And this harkens back, and think about it, this uh, is reminiscent to me of John 1. So in verse 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, the Logos, was with God, and the Word, Logos, was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And you can see this hymn reflecting John 1. Now, Paul is aware of this, this notion of how the ancients, because he's, he's growing up in the first century, he is aware of how the ancients view the cosmos. But he redirects this idea he, and he takes it, he interprets the body not as the cosmos, but as the church. While Christ is the head of creation, only the church is his body, not the cosmos, his church. And we are his body now on earth. Paul wants the Colossians to know that the church is the place that exercises Christ's sovereignty over the cosmos. So, and again, not the funny building with the steeple and the the cross on top, it's you and me. It's through us, through the collective us of the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, 
the Christ sovereignty is expressed over the cosmos. Well, how's that so? Well, in one way, we set the example through leading our lives. We are the fifth gospel. So you have the four written gospels and the fifth is us. How we respond to the gospel is the evidence of the gospel's truth working through us. Now, I'm not talking about us being perfect and sinless. I'm talking about what flows. And if you look at the history of the world and what Christianity has brought to the world, the world is fundamentally different to what it was in the time of Jesus, solely because of the sacrifice of Christians. From every, anywhere from schooling for the masses through to hospitals, through to um, you know, universities, through to um, even keeping ancient documents um, and recording them and, and rewriting them and keeping them for posterity, through to medicine, through to the sciences, through to um, human rights, through to uh, the rights of women. You know, you look at all other cultures. These things aren't organic to those cultures. They only come about because of Christianity in the West. And as the, as the West grew and its influence and power grew, it influenced everyone else. And it's the underlying, underpinning um, worldview that dominates now. If, um, if you ever want an interesting read and the book's about that thick, you can pick up Tom Holland's Dominion. And Tom... He's a historian, he always viewed himself as an agnostic, but he is one of the, the growing number of academics who now says, hey, in my very way I think and act, I'm a Christian, because Christianity has influenced my, my thinking so much. So Paul points out the Christ, that Christ's body now is the church on earth, in this universe. And it's the second time that Paul uses the phrase firstborn, re-emphasizing the priority of Christ. The result is Jesus' absolute preeminence. So everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, he goes on to say, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And this fullness, this Greek word, it equates basically to all of God's nature as it dwells in Christ. And it's the same word used in Colossians 2 verse 9 that we'll come to. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So the false teachers in Coloss, <clears throat> excuse me, in Colossae gave undue prominence to supernatural powers that filled the universe. Regarding them, these powers as intermediaries between the gods and man. But Paul corrects this thinking in the church, and he says, no, nah, no. He corrects this by affirming that the full nature of God dwells in Christ exclusively. Note that. It's exclusive to Jesus. It's not in any other source. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. The Greek literally reads, because in him, in Christ, was pleased all the fullness to dwell. God is pleased for all the fullness to dwell. So Christ is the dwelling place, literally to take up residence in the Greek. Christ is the dwelling place, the residence of God. 
This drives home to the Colossians Christ's sovereignty. And in verse 20, and we'll bring it to a close. <clears throat> verse 20 points out, Paul points out, there was to, uh, to reconcile to himself all things. So the hymn comes to a close with a final tribute to Christ as the agent of reconciliation. In verse 19, God was pleased that his fullness should dwell in his son. In verse 19, God was also pleased that through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. The estrangements corrected, the hostility is ceased through the body of Jesus. We're saved. That all things are reconciled, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And don't read too much into that meaning, oh, what about angels? It's not talking about, it's talking about the totality of this salvation. It is full and complete. It's not just the church in this case, and humanity, that has been reconciled. The reconciliation wrought by Christ extends to the entire cosmic order. Something that was broken is set correct. Every part of the universe is included in the reconciling work of God. And as we said, you know, the universe is made for Christ as the end goal. It's made through Christ and for Christ. And so, the take-home message, I guess, is that in our modern world, there's always somebody saying, oh, you know, well, there's many ways to God, or, or I'm a good person, or whatever, but the, the, or, you know, you get, oh, Christians are bigots, or whatever. There's always all these distractions everywhere at us. You know, you've got people wanting us to pick up every social cause under the sun. They want the church to be the advocates for everything. They've taken the ideas that we gave them as Christians and they're trying to turn them back on us. But what does Paul remind us here? We're, we're surrounded and bombarded by all sorts of other teachings going on. And these are worming their way into the church. There are churches that what we call liberal churches that just you know don't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead and are into every social activist cause that there is. Well, what's our take-home message from this? Paul pulls us back and he reminds us, Jesus, Jesus. Let's fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who suffered such injustice from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that is our take-home message. Jesus. He was before all things and has the supremacy over all things. And at the end of the day, all things are made for him. Thanks, Church. Have a good Sunday.